Hello, and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of the Investment Integration Project and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change, lifting up the leaders, problem solvers, and bright minds, both in the U.S. and around the world, who can guide us to the next normal that we need. Today's guest is Ray Ramsey. Ray is an independent trustee and member of the Investment Committee and interim CEO at the Nathan Cummings Foundation. Ray has led, founded, and contributed to an array of organizations over the course of his career, including investment firms, social enterprises, and community development finance institutions. We'll hear more from him directly about how his lived experience has shaped the worldview from which he sets the strategy of the Nathan Cummings Foundation. Ray also serves as a director on numerous boards, including the Morgan Stanley Institute for Sustainability, MMGL Real Estate, the Local Initiative Support Corporation, and the Washington Jesuit Academy. Welcome, Ray, and thanks for joining us. Great to be here. As a PAC leader in the 100% Club among foundations, you all did not stop just there. In this latest white paper, which addresses the value proposition, as well as values proposition, can you tell us what that distinction means for you and your team? Well, what, what it means is that, you know, declaring yourself that you're going to be impact oriented is really one of the early stops along a long journey. And, and so we just humbly say this is a beginning and we want to add more texture to being uh, to saying that we're impact. And so that means looking at the world through a lens of racial and economic and environmental justice. And so holding ourselves accountable. And this report, uh, Values Proposition, is our way of sharing our journey and some of the content um, that goes with it. As someone who witnessed so much of this evolution, both from inside the organization and outside the organization, what signal do you feel this sends to the field? Well, one, it, it says, again, I think there's a level of humility that we want to go with this, right? And so we're not saying that we've got all the answers and that we have the, the secret sauce. Um, we are sharing some of what we call a toolkit, but we're also conveying that we continuously learn. And that's the signaling. And the other signal is, is it really goes to the aspirational side that you can do this, that this is not outside of your reach. It's not outside of the possibilities of your organization um, to keep moving forward. That's our biggest themes. Let's just keep moving forward. There's value to be had on the other side and let's unlock that value. So you mentioned a toolkit. That is a kind of atypical for a foundation structured like yourselves. Normally consultants and other network organizations put out such things. So why were you compelled to share your learnings in, in this way in particular? One of the things we can say to you is that we spent a fair amount of time talking to other organizations and we reached out to people like Kellogg and the Rockefeller Brothers and we observed with great interest the leadership that the Ford Foundation was, was taking. So we borrow from each other if we're doing this right. And so we said, now we're going to show you um, what we're doing and maybe, just maybe, some people will borrow from what we're doing, but if it's it's an ecosystem of players who ought to be borrowing uh, best practices and lessons learned from each other. And so this notion of of a toolkit for other organizations, it's it's got this dichotomy of findings that we have learned from the field by interviewing and working with outside 
uh, OCIOs, so the OCIOs, the uh, chief investment officers, and as well as um, an author took you on a journey of our journey and intimately interviewed members of the investment committee, the trustees, and the staff. And so in real time, you could see our deliberations and how we arrive at a decision. So they often say, show, don't tell, <laughs> particularly when it comes to your work. So I really appreciate that. But I think I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about your journey and how you, you got here, because I think that's also part of it is that this choice making that we're talking about is individual people choosing differently. And you chose, you know, along your pathway to get where you are. Many things and there were pivotal moments. Can you share us a little bit about your personal journey? Well, everybody who knows me well knows that I'm always reticent about talking about my own journey. And so I'll just give you a few tidbits and, and you know, but there are universal elements of this, right? I, I believe that everybody has something inside of them. And one of the things that we all share are aspirations, you know, that are unique to ourselves. And too often in society, there are forces that will quash those aspirations. And so what I had were people who influenced me, particularly going all the way back to sixth grade, where I had a teacher who just always talked about lifting the human spirit. And I shared with her that in her honor, I would just focus on lifting the spirit and never crushing the human spirit. So all I've tried to do is just try to live up to that in the various things that I've been involved with. Sometimes that means you have to fight, but along the way you keep learning. And I think she always instilled that you have to stay humble and that it's always about a team. It's not about an individual. So I just want to keep taking the lid and the constraints off of that aspiration that people have. You know, a lot of times people look at black and brown communities and they talk about what they are going to do for them and how they're going to help people. And I often say it's about facilitating their success rather than you saying you're going to help them. And so if you view people through the lens of opportunity, not through the lens of, of need, it expands your aperture to a whole different way of, of looking at people. And that's all I've tried to do um, with the various stops that I've had in my career. And then Nathan Cummings was a, a serendipity. And um, they sought me out to help move the agenda on impact. And somehow I started there. And now I'm here in the seat as the interim uh, CEO. And so you can't plan the journey. You, you just have to be prepared when things uh, are presented to you. I, I love that framing of the opportunity is always to choose to lift spirits. And there's so much of this is about choice. Asset allocation is a choice. Policies are choice. Belief statements are choice. Um, but many organizations hide behind these things by continuing practices that are just an extension of these operating systems that we know have failed us in the past. Uh, you know, we're making incremental changes. But, you know, you talk in your paper about systems change, focusing on justice, both for this mo moment and in the future. Sounds like you guys are ready to take on more, um, not only with your practices, but with your voice and leading the field and talking to some of these other organizations that you mentioned. So can you share with us a little bit about what that kind of choice making means for asset allocators and who manages your money and some of the other things that you brought out in this paper? Well, I appreciate you highlighting the issue of choice, right? And, and when we're fortunate in society, we get to make choices. And the question is, what do you do with that? 
and how will that define you as an institution or as an individual? And so I'm fond of when, when I talk about Nathan Cummings, I say there are three things that are all mashed together and this influences our choices. One, we are restless, intellectually restless, which I love. That means we're in the pursuit of learning more. The second is we're aspirational and that goes to our hearts and our souls. And so we aspire for ourselves to reach a certain level and we want society to get to a certain level. But then we are also data-driven. And so all three of those things come together. And what we try to show in this is we said, we have these aspirations, we are restless, but we need to get data. And so when we were talking about this work of, well, who's gonna manage our money and how is it going to be done? Our very first stop was, well, let's talk to the people who are doing it now and let's find out what that data says and then share with people what those findings were. And so that's at the heart of the report, but you'll still see the aspirational and you'll still see the restlessness. So in this report, you surveyed OCIOs that you just mentioned, and um, you were screening for their ability to prioritize racial justice in the way that you all see this. And some of that framing sounded like it was challenging for some folks. So what were some of the other aha moments in the study that really the data shares the story? Well, a couple of one, and you highlighted one of them, which is there's good news that more people are moving toward, quote, impact. The work to be done is what does that term actually mean when we say impact? And I would say it's impossible to drive impact in this world unless you have a lens that reminds you of the importance of justice and look at that through a lens of race and equity. It is just inexorably linked. And that ultimately leads you to issues of power. The second issue is, which, you know, there have been a number of studies, but this verified it, where people hide behind the issue of financial returns. And that is a ruse and it is an excuse. And so what this study does, and many others, quite frankly, is it blows a hole in that, in that perception that, oh my goodness, it's an either or. We are sacrificing. In fact, one would argue when you look at risk factors with your portfolio to not lean into ESG, to not leaning into impact in dynamics of race and equity, you are exposing your portfolio to a higher level of risk. So I think it's even, it's even worse. And so I think some of those individuals are going to be left behind, even in the return world, where they're clinging to their fossil fuels, where they're clinging to the clubhouse way of doing business. And we're going, that clubhouse is being dismantled brick by brick. And so at some point, they're going to notice it when the roof gets taken off. Let's linger on power for a moment. I think there are many folks who have shied away who have it from using that term and really thinking about how power fits into all of this. Certainly there are many at what we might call the grassroots level. A lot of the social entrepreneurs and maybe CDFIs use power language a lot, but that's not historically the domain of sometimes those who have it. So can you share with us a little bit about more what that unpacked for you in, in the in the paper and maybe even in your own life? Well, I love the word power precisely because it creates a level of discomfort because change requires a level of discomfort. And you know that, that what goes hand in hand with power is the notion of thinking about a virtual mirror. If you're going to deal with power, you have to be willing to look in that mirror. 
and it starts with the self journey and then it emanates out to all of your associations and the dynamics of the organization that you're involved with. And if it's a true mirror, you can't escape the reflection that's in the mirror. And so people will run from that. And it's always like, well, maybe this part of my life will deal with it. You know, I'll be extractive over here, but I'll be good over here. And it requires, it's, it's ultimately a 360 view. And, and then when you get that, it then goes to the issue of, well, what do I choose to do with that? And how do I use it? And then the last thing about power, and it goes back to, uh, you know, when you think about political science as a discipline and the study of people coming together, and there was a seminal work done many years ago by Robert Dahl talking about in a pluralistic society, who governs, who's in control, who benefits. And so you've got to ask yourself those extra questions. And ultimately, that's where we'll know that we're truly driving impact and we get beyond the rhetorical use of the term. And then we grow a little bit more comfortable with the notion and the idea of power. So there were three specific questions that you asked can you tell us a little bit more about those questions and what the responses were related to that and how it will change your behavior? Well, again, we, we were trying to ascertain how people chose to manage their money, what kinds of returns they were looking for, and how they interact. And so I think when you look at it in total, without getting into all the parts, because you know we want people to read the report, so I don't want to give you everything. But I think, again, um, I summarize it by saying um, with the analogy that the water is fine and you can get in and there are enough reasons to say yes um, um, to what's going on. And, and another thing I want to share with you is, and it just comes from a lived experience when I was in a, a session where managers all got together and philanthropy got together and I had people approaching me, obviously I'm a person of color and they were sort of trying to say, like, this is my opportunity to figure out how can I get in? How can I manage your money? And I said to them, it takes four yeses um, to get there. And so don't be fooled by that. There's one door to enter. You've got to get the CEO that represents the staff side of the organization. You need a yes there. But you also need a yes from the trustees to, do, to lean in. You need to get the investment committee, very often conservative, small c, and then whoever is actually managing money, whether it's an internal uh, chief investment officer or an outside chief investment officer. So think about that. It's four yeses in order to get to the big yes. And, and so I share that with people who are on the other side who are seeking to manage assets. But I also share that with people who hold the assets. Remember that when people are trying to knock on the door and it's, re- it's hard enough to knock on one door but we're really asking the knock on four doors. And so as you summed up the report, there's a lot of facts. There's a lot of data. You learned a lot from this process. And what does it mean for how you all are going to allocate differently or, or do something differently? I, I think that's a great question. And for us, one, if we had the exquisite wisdom of hindsight, we would have built the racial equity lens into our framing of impact on day one. Um, but that's actually not what happened for us. And we were very excited to go 100% mission aligned and with impact. But we have an ongoing dialogue between our investment team and our programmatic staff. 
And it became very clear when you look at that cross dialogue inside of an organization where the staff wanted to go and even some of the aspirations of board members. And that's where I mentioned that humility set in. And we suddenly said after our wonderful announcement, this is not enough for us. And so what it caused for us is to open up a series of more questions, questions um, to our money manager. So an organization, GEM, you know, manages our money. And so for us, it started saying, we're going to pose more questions to you while we as an investment committee are going to hold ourselves more accountable. And so this is honestly a work in progress. So we are in the market right now with a process of assessing where we want to go in terms of our investment management and a number of players are involved in that. And for us, it is about how do we apply the racial equity lens to everything that we're doing. And so, again, I view that as not a destination, but it'll be a continuous journey. And, and we know we have a lot more work to do um, because there's work around measurement. And one of the findings from the report, you know, it shows you that the world of measurement needs a lot of work. Um, and so those are some of the things that come out of the um, report, that there needs to be greater clarity and the pursuit of more strength in terms of the metrics and how do we measure this work. Um, so right now, there's a lot of our aspiration, but we want to do more, more work on codifying. I love that you use the term accountability. That is my word of the year. And there's so many levels to that ourselves, our organization, society, the systems. And I, I, I appreciate you being willing to go there with that word because it will hold you your, your own self to account in meaningful ways. And as we think about what's next and who you are going to look to for other insights and new insights on this journey that you are still on, is there someone that you think about as a, either a contemporary or historical figure that we might also now go find some notes on that person as we think to create this next more just normal well, you know, there are many individuals that um, have been shaping the American landscape and thinking about this, you know, but I'll just take a page from someone from my own life who is now deceased, but his name was Jim Rouse. Um, and he um, was born in 1914, and he launched an organization called the Enterprise Community Partners, and I had the opportunity to work with them. And he made a tiny investment in an organization called Jubilee Housing in Washington, D.C. And suddenly it's flourished into a major national organization. And I just want to read to you something that Jim said, which I found was profound. And he said, profit is not the legitimate purpose of business. Now, this was a businessman. He said, the legitimate purpose of business is to provide a product or service that people need and do it well so that it is profitable. And so he turned the notion of profit on its ear and he lived that. He built the city of Columbia from scratch. He revitalized, he was the ultimate capitalist, but in his life, and when he passed away, right before he passed away, he wrote a letter. And because he had built the city of Columbia, he started the Rouse companies and, then, and he started enterprise. So we have to think about it, he had these three major uh, spokes of his life. And in his letter, he said, the most important work of my life is the work of enterprise, which was all about lifting people and their spirit. And so that's why he's a particular hero because he's a capitalist, 
that was saying those words in the 80s, which is when that quote came about. And he started Enterprise in, in 82. So I think that's very special. It's a great, powerful story. And another reason why we need to make sure we look back on history, because this is not the first time people have questioned the legitimacy of business and what do we do about it? And if we are thinking about this next normal, what is one characteristic that we need in order to make it possible? I would say there are a number of characteristics we need, but the most important is will. And it is because you've got to overcome the pervasive disbelief that certain things are not possible. And, and so you, it takes will to believe and, and faith, which is the next step in the things that you can't see right at this moment, but your willpower in your heart is telling you that it must be. And, and so then you just have to do the work to make it so. And that's what I think is so important. And it starts with that. And so I think at the foundation are tiny steps at showing our willpower. But we also, you know, with our restless aspirational side, it's a level of faith because you have to move forward things that you don't 100% see today, but that inner core is telling you it must be because what's happening now is not just. We've never lived in a just world. But we've got to pursue it. But we must pursue it. And as we think about what that means for us to be good ancestors in this moment, for those future people who will live with our choices. Uh, there was an author, Adrian Marie Brown, who wrote this in Emergent Strategy, this framing that I love so much, because it's so many levels to that. Awesome. So what do you think we need to do to be good ancestors in this moment? Well, I think, um, again, I believe it's about sharing. And I think it's about being humble because we keep learning, right? And you said earlier, um, it's never been, quote, totally just. And so I think it's all about the pursuit. And, you know, I, I believe that everybody born into the world is an artist. And if we just imagine for a moment that everybody is an artist, but the trick of life is that you get one canvas and just imagine for a moment with that canvas that every defining moment in your life are the colors that go on that canvas. And so you get a choice. Do I want tepid shades of gray or broad strokes with bright colors? You decide. And so I think that's the trick to life. It's beautiful. And so what's next for the foundation after 17 years on this journey? Um, what do we have to look forward to, to hearing from you all? Well, after the report comes, we then grapple with each other to say, okay, now we've got, we've got work to do and we are going to apply more formally our racial and equity lens to our work. Um, we are going to set up a dynamic of more measurement. We're going to have the willingness to share those measures and those outcomes with our peers uh, and be transparent. Transparency is one of the things that we care about. And so we know that's not going to show perfection, but what it's going to show is effort and that we care. And at the end of the day, those are two very powerful things. It's not going to show perfection, but we're all in it and we're grappling together. And I just love it. And, you know, for me, working with the family foundation, I just have to tell you um, the most powerful thing with this foundation built on Jewish values um, is that they accepted me in. And uh, I didn't have to be Jewish to be accepted in but I feel mishpuka uh, with, with all of them. And it's a very special thing. 
when you're outside of that, you feel like you're part of the family. And so we grapple with each other on this journey. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Ray. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You can find the white paper with more detail on the process that Ray and his team at the Nathan Cummings Foundation undertook at impact.nathancummings.org. The Reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth-Davies and Carrie Hansen, with thanks to Dr. Jillian Marcel. We have benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. To send us your favorite quote or ideas for future guests who you think represent the principles of the Reconstruction, email us at tr at impactalpha.com. Impact Alpha's editor is David Bank, and our producer is Isaac Silk. Special thanks to Lainika Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the dash reconstruction and sign up for a mailing list to learn when new episodes are released. The Reconstruction Podcast is free of charge, but it's powered by Impact Alpha subscribers. Join us. Impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Today, I leave you with the words of Shirley Chisholm, the first Black woman elected to the United States Congress in 1968 and the first Black woman to run for president. You don't make progress by standing on the sidelines, whimpering and complaining. You make progress by implementing ideas.